seated. Imagine a table, a flat top colored by glossy browns and streaks of grain, supported by sturdy legs molded to support the weight of a banquet. On close inspection, this table is colored by nicks and cuts, stains and marks, each one representing a moment, a festivity, a time of food and fellowship. Knives slipped, dishes broke, drinks spilled, each leaving behind the trace of shared appetite and affection. Surrounding the table are seats which invite and hold the place for those welcomed. Each chair a symbol of the size of this banquet and the shared acquaintance of each person. Supporting this story are the memories that hang in the background. Surrounding this culture are the photographs that have captured the best parts of this narrative. This is a table that invites those who share a name, an identity, a love. This table is for a family to speak, laugh, eat, and enjoy. Yet one end of the table is being extended, a leaf added in, a new space, a new seat, a new member. You are invited to join, to sit, to speak, laugh, eat, enjoy. You are invited to inherit a name, an identity, a love. The Father has prepared your place, has offered you his food, has given you his name, has taken you in. This is adoption. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you to, to finish up uh, the book of Romans. And uh, I wanted to, before we get started, I, I just want to uh, thank everybody. Some, some of you know, about three weeks ago on Tuesday, we received one of those kind of life-changing phone calls of uh, Cheryl's sister, Dawn, that lives up in Michigan, passed away really suddenly uh, at the age of 55. And um, we were just kind of still, honestly, kind of shocked and um, just kind of carrying the weight of that right now. And uh, we appreciate all the, all the prayers and um, reaching out. Brad uh, preached uh, that week uh, with just a couple days notice, so I appreciate him uh, stepping in. And I just kind of said, pull something from your file, because I wanted to keep this message for me. So I, I wasn't going to give this one away. Um, I, I wanted to preach this one uh, for a variety of reasons, and I wanted to close out the series. Uh, and then Scott um, preached as well. That was kind of pre-planned for... Uh, some vacation time we had left, but I appreciate him doing that as well. I appreciate all of you guys, and just uh, thank you for, for praying for us. We're still, you know, you'll probably sense it a little bit as you interact with my family. We're just kind of carrying a, carrying a little bit of a weight right now, so uh, we, we appreciate the prayers. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for uh, the day, uh, and it's good uh, to be back um, with our church uh, and our uh, our tribe uh, to, to be preaching today, that it does feel good to be doing that. So we, we thank you for your grace. And as we talk about this just uh, amazing truth uh, that we are adopted uh, into your family, I pray that we would um, just be blown away by it, mesmerized by it, moved by it, uh, and that our lives would be different because of it. Uh, we thank you again for Jesus who makes all this possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
I've walked uh, with enough people through uh, the kind of traditional birth of their children uh, to know that there's a lot of beauty in that moment of carrying a child and even the painful process that we talked a few weeks ago uh, about the painful process of actually giving birth. There's a lot of beauty in those moments. Uh, Cheryl and I kind of expanded our family and uh, our children uh, through adoption. And so that's why this sermon means a lot to me to kind of use this metaphor and to share with you some truths from God, God's word. And what we've experienced is that in the kind of rear view mirror, there's a lot of beauty when it comes to adoption as well. There, there's beauty both ways that a family comes, comes together. But I will say that as you go through the adoption process, a lot of the beauty is seen after it's done, right? In, in the midst of it, like a lot of things, it is hard to see the beauty, but there's beauty in the training and paperwork. Oh, the paperwork, the paperwork, the paperwork. It's, it's unbelievable, the paperwork. I, I actually remember uh, we had adopted uh, Sam, and then later we adopted Lila, and we used the same attorney. And she said, oh, I actually have been meaning to send this to you, but I wanted to give you uh, the paperwork from Sam's adoption. And it was like this thick. I was like, you know more about me than my family knows about me, all right? Um, they just, they, they look at everything. There's a ton of paperwork, but it reminds you all of that paperwork, all of that training, in a really beautiful way, it reminds you that what you're doing is really important, right? Every document you sign, every promise you make, every training you go through, it is just a, a it's a visible reminder to you that, hey, what you're doing is important. It's a beautiful thing. There's a beauty, now I would not have said this in the middle of either adoption. We uh, waited nine, 10 months for Sam and a, a little over two years for Lila, um, which uh, put me then, much to my chagrin, above the bell curve of traditional parent by age, right? So, um, and that's okay, but there's a beauty in the waiting. I wouldn't have said that in the moment, but don't get me wrong, waiting for anything is hard. If you don't believe me, you can go to the happiest place on earth, Walt Disney World, and you go to a line and you will very quickly discover that even in the most magical place on the planet, waiting is hard. You'll see kids throwing temper tantrums. You'll see adults throwing temper tantrums, actually. Um, waiting is hard. Um, waiting for an adoption has some beauty to it in that it's a, re it's a reminder to you that all of this is done in God's timing, that God is going to bring the family together in his way and in his time. There's a beauty in the selection uh, process that we're going to uh, look at a couple passages today in the New Testament that talk about adoption. And adoption in the first century is very different than the way we experience adoption today, especially when it comes to the process Cheryl and I went through of infant domestic adoption, what was the path that we were on. And in that process, the process we went through, uh, birth parents actually choose the adoptive parents. Uh, and in the first century, they wouldn't have really known much about this. There were more like orphanages and, and sometimes children were just kind of abandoned uh, at the temple gate. And it was Christians in Rome, especially Christians in Rome would come and, and bring those children in that were just abandoned at the gates would bring those children in and, and raise them. And it's a really kind of both of those things are really beautiful to kind of do the selecting yourself but also to be selected. There's beauty in both of those things. And it's a reminder, when, when you're selected by a birth family, it's a reminder that what that birth family is doing is an incredibly humble and beautiful thing, right? I think sometimes in our culture, we might have a hesitancy uh, unintentionally to sometimes look down on parents that place their kids for adoption. The opposite is true. What they're doing is humble. 
What they're doing is beautiful. What they're doing is incredible. They want their child to be placed in a loving home. And for whatever personal reasons, they don't feel that they can offer that. And it's an incredibly beautiful and humble thing that they're doing. And that is the goal of any process, right? Is to create a family and a loving home for, for that child. There's beauty in the courtroom. Uh, I think of on our adoption journey uh, that probably there is no more beautiful moment to me than, than the courtroom after you, after you bring the kids home. That would be number one. But after that, it, it's the courtroom. And there comes this moment where the judge has looked at all the paperwork and he's done all of this stuff and he pronounces you a forever family. And at that moment, birth certificates are changed. It's made official. The judge and both of our kids' adoption said it's now just as if they were born to you, right? Everything is different and everything is changed, and I want us to see the beauty of adoption because it's embedded in this Romans text today. Um, it, it's it's embedded in it, and we want to um, we in order to understand the text I'm going to show you, we really have to spend a little bit of time, if you'll allow me, understanding the family that Christ adopted us out of. Right, so we're going to look at this passage that says Christ has adopted us. We are now his sons and daughters. But to understand the beauty of that, you have to know what was the family that he adopted us out of. And you remember a few weeks ago, I preached on Romans chapter 5. And we talked in that text about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam being the Adam from the book of Genesis. And the second Adam being Christ. And, and you can go back and read Romans 5. It talks a lot about it. But the first Adam, that kind of represents the family the spiritual family that we were born into. And we were born into the spiritual family because of the sin of the first Adam. Here's how uh, Paul says it in Romans 5. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is helping us to understand that we were adopted out of this family, first of all, called sin. We were adopted out of this family called sin. It's part of our inheritance from the first Adam. Here's what that means. No one ever, ever, ever had to sit you down, and no one ever, ever, ever had to sit me down and say, let me teach you how to sin, right? Now, if I can get a little even closer to home, you'll never, ever have to sit your kids down as a side note and say, let me teach you how to sin. They just figure it out on their own, right? And we figured it out on our own as well. It's part of the family that we were born into. And every single person has this in common. We are all sinners. You know what the problem is with the candidate you love that you're going to vote for on Tuesday? The, the problem with them? You might love their policies. The problem is they're a sinner. You know the other person on the other side of the aisle? You know what the problem with them is? They are a sinner, right? We are all sinners. It's part of the family we were born into. The verbiage that Paul says is that sin had its reign. It comes for every person. And Paul will use in other texts this imagery that we are slaves to sin. And slavery can mean a lot of different things. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but slavery can mean a lot of things. But one of the ways that it's most often used in the Bible is under whose control are you? 
It, it can be the brutal, actually, control of another person. Who is controlling you? And this looks different for every single person, but sin, uh, sin seeks to control us. And so you can see the problem, right? Every single person is a sinner. We all have that. It's part of the human experience because of the family that we're born into. Every single person is in the planet has sinned. No one ever taught us to do that. We just find it naturally. And now we're all living together on planet Earth, on this rock called Earth. And it's not difficult, given that, to see why our world has so many issues, right? Why is there so much anger because of our first family? Why is there so much violence because of our first family. Why is there so much sexual sin? Because of our first family. We were born into this family called sin. And because of that, we were born, and it's gonna get better, I promise you. You're like, you really didn't want to hand this off to someone else, it's kind of a downer, no. We were born into this family called death as well. Explains why the world is the way that it is. Why is there disease? Why is there natural disaster? Why is it, why is the world the way that it is? Because way back, sin was introduced into the world and we haven't made it any better and the world just doesn't work the way that it should. Spiritually, this is our nuclear family. And we understand receiving things from our biological family. I, I always used to think that I received my height from my dad because my dad was six foot two, um, I'm quite a bit taller than he was, but he was six foot two. And then several years ago, my mom, uh, uh, my, my grandma on my mom's side passed away and I went up for that funeral and my mom was the oldest of 10 children, right? Uh, and so I hadn't seen a bunch of my cousins since they were just little kids. It had been a long time since I'd seen them and I went up for this uh, funeral and I saw a bunch of my cousins. I was like, oh my God, they all look like me, <laughs> right? Tall, stocky, huge. I was like, we ought to put together a football team is what we need to do, and, right? And you probably have things that you would say, I've received that from my biological family. I just know that. And height is one thing, uh, but, but spiritually, this is not a fantastic gift that we've received, but, but it's true. Spiritually, we've inherited sin. We've inherited death. We've inherited condemnation. And this is what makes what Christ did so beautiful. Here's finally Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received, listen to this, guys, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also share in his glory. He adopted us. He adopted us. And spiritually how it works is that Jesus went to the cross. He forgave our sin. He overcame it. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit marks us as adopted. So we are no longer in this slavery to sin. This family called sin. We're, we're no longer in this uh, enslaved to death. We are in this family now, Paul says, called sonship. Right? You are now sons and daughters of God through adoption. So what that means is we are no longer controlled by sin. We are instead led by the Father through the Holy Spirit. We are no longer in this family called condemnation. We are adopted into a family called love and grace and acceptance. This changes everything. 
And it almost sounds like Paul is contradicting himself from a couple chapters ago. Earlier, Paul said that we are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to God. And now he's saying we are sons and daughters of God in Romans 6. It's like, is he contradicting himself? Are we slaves or are we sons and daughters? Are we in servitude to him or are we his children? Which is it, Paul? And the imagery of servitude and slavery is one that Paul loves to use throughout uh, his writings. And one of the things that he loves to help us understand through the imagery of servitude and slavery is to help us understand control. In other words, servitude in Paul's language asks the question, who controls you? Who do you obey? Who do you serve with your life? Who is your master? Is it sin or is it Christ? And it's also important to understand that in the gospel that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, in the, go- the gospel is not that you won't be serving anyone. That's not the gospel. Everybody serves someone. The gospel is that you get to leave behind the master called sin and you get to find a new Lord named Jesus. The promise is that you will have an opportunity to serve a better master, Christ. That's the service language. It's who is controlling you? Who controls your heart? Who controls your mind? Who controls your actions? Is it Christ or is it sin? Now, there's other language that Paul will use, familial language, in which we can understand the confidence that we now have. Our confidence to stand before God, to pray, to worship, to come to him. Our confidence comes from our adoption as, our, as sons and daughters. And listen, The idea of servitude and the idea of being a son or a daughter are not enemies of one another. They're actually friends. And you understand the role of servitude along with having sons and daughters. You understand that if you have kids. Servitude, sons, they're not enemies of each other at all, right? So you probably, like I do, when you were raising your kids or If you don't have kids, you've just observed this before, but you probably have had chores that you expect your kids to do, right? Take out the trash, clean their room, clear the table for dinner, and you expect them as sons and daughters to perform these acts of service. I remember uh, just a few weeks ago, I was telling you this story. We were kind of, uh, one of uh, Sam's chores is that he cleans the table one day. He cleans the, he cleans the table uh, at the end of dinner. And he's taking the dishes five feet from our table to the kitchen. And in an offhanded comment, he says, why do I have to do everything around here? I thought he was going to meet an early demise. As his worn out, tired, frustrated mom is sitting there, from serving him all day, educating him, teaching him how to be a good man. As she's sitting there, why do I have to do everything around here? It's like, oh, dude, don't ever, don't, don't, all right? Don't, don't, don't say that, all right? Don't, don't say that, especially to your mom. Uh, and, and so kids have it chores that you expect them to do. And if they don't, you might discipline them. There may be consequences. But here's what typically doesn't happen. They're not disowned, Right? Your kid forgets to take out the trash and your response is not, you are no longer worthy to be called my son. Right? The relationship's over. No, they're they're not disowned because the basis of the relationship is not transactional in a healthy family. You don't have kids because you need someone to mow your lawn. Right? Let's, right, okay? Right? 
Like, I'm tired of taking out the trash. I'm going to have another kid. No, no, right? The basis of the relationship is not transactional. The basis of the relationship is familial. It's loving, and it happens in every family. So if you come to my house and I invite you over for dinner, I'm not asking you to take out my trash or to cook the meal or to do my dishes. I might ask my kids to help with that. So you could phrase it one of two ways. We are servants of Christ who have been adopted as sons and daughters, or you could say we are sons and daughters who lovingly serve the master. Either way, those are both true, but our primary standing in confidence with God, our primary confidence is in our adoption. What Christ has done, giving us his Holy Spirit, that is our primary standing with God. Servitude, service, flows from that relationship. You may remember the story of the prodigal son on the screen for you. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Every Jewish person listening to this story in Jesus' day would be like, what? What an insult to the father. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went off and hired himself out as a citizen of the country who sent him uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, when he finally woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Look at this, underline this. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Here's what the son thinks, and maybe this sounds familiar to you. The son thinks he has utterly and permanently ruined his relationship with his father. The way he acted, the way he behaved, that he's ruined the relationship, and he has bought into this lie that his primary standing with the father was transactional. That it was behavior-based. And because he didn't behave the way that he should, because he screwed up, he assumes, he's approaching the father with the assumption that the father is done with him. Did you notice what he said? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, he's hoping that dad might allow him to enter into a transactional relationship with him. That the father might hire him on as a servant. And I think that there are people in our community, there are people probably in this room that think they have utterly and completely destroyed their relationship with their father because of what they've done and because of where they've been and because of sins that they have committed. And here's what I would say to you. You greatly underestimate the grace of your dad. 
You underestimate the power of repentance. And you underestimate the power of the Father's love. And you underestimate your adoption into his family. The confidence that we have before God is familial. It's it's family-based. It's loving-based. It's based on remembering the love of the Father, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this love gives us hope, and it gives us joy, and it gives us peace, and it gives us purpose, and it motivates us to serve and sacrifice, and yes, even consider ourselves slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness because of his love for us. So I think a lot of people in churches all over the country are really strong on, I'm a servant of his, but we're not very strong on, I'm his child. We're really strong on, I'm a servant. It's transactional. I do for him, he does for me. We're really strong on that. But we're not really strong on, I am adopted. I am his son. I am his daughter. We are family. And there's a certain amount of fear when all of your confidence and all of your identity is in you. Isn't there a certain amount of fear? And in your effort and not in the Father's grace? You find yourself wondering, like, have I been good enough? Have I transacted well enough? Have I served enough? Have I done enough kids ministry? (laughs) Have I done enough work with middle schoolers, right? Have I given enough dollars? That's a servant mindset. And that's a servant mindset that has become separated from a family mindset. I've had some bosses, you probably have too, that I like and love, but it is just different. When you know that they can fire you or that you can be downsized or that there are conditions to the relationship, the relationship is not the same as the unconditional love of a parent. And this is what the worker mentality misses. The joy of the unconditional love of the father and the security of being a son or a daughter. So I want you to think about it just for a minute. If you're someone who's, you're really strong on the service, but you're not so strong on the son or the daughter thing, I want you to think about this for a minute. You know what that text I read to you says? You get to call him father. You get to call God father. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ did. What Christ did allowed for your adoption. You get to call him father. And this is hard for us because you had a relationship with a sinful and harsh man that you had to call father. Or you had a relationship with a disengaged man that you called earthly father. Or you had a relationship with an absent man that you called father. It's hard for some to see God this way. But consider this. God is a good, good father. And he engages in a really positive way. And I want us to become enamored with that truth. Not just as servants of Christ, but as sons and daughters of God. Adopted sons and daughters. So I want you to see God in this way for a few minutes. Because I think in American culture especially, it's very transactional. Our whole culture is very transactional. And so we bring that into relationship with God. If I serve, if I'm good, if I behave, then God, da, 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 da. And I want us to just rest in a few minutes about our adoption. And that we get to call him dad. You know, a good father leads. So if you don't know, if you didn't have a good father, I just want you to know, a good father leads. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. God, through his Holy Spirit, has a desire to lead you. 
A good father disciplines. Someone let my kids know this after church, right? <laughs> they think bad father disciplines. They don't understand it. They're too young. A good father disciplines. And I've told you this a bunch. I discipline my kids, not yours, right? That's appropriate. God disciplines his children because he loves them and he wants to lead them to life. A good father provides. God will give us everything we need to live the life he's called us to live. I've rested in that truth the last three weeks. And you're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. It's like God is a providing God. He'll give us everything we need. A good father shows grace. I saw a meme the other day that said, a dad's role in the family is to be grumpy and no thinks. That's dad's role, right? And I laugh at that, and, and it's partially true. But I think one of the greatest gifts as dads that we can give our children is regular examples of his grace. Grace and discipline, grace and relationship, forgiveness of sins. It's modeling grace. A good father leaves an inheritance. I'm not talking money, right? I'm talking they, they leave behind a legacy and they leave behind an inheritance. And I want to kind of land the plane here for a little bit because we talk about the other stuff a lot. But did you notice that in the text we read earlier? We are heirs of God. And did you notice what it said? That we are co-heirs with Christ. So it's like as we're adopted into the family, we become heirs. What exactly does that mean and what exactly does it look like? Well, we don't have to wonder what that inheritance looks like because we are co-heirs with Christ and he's gone ahead of us. And so we can see the type of inheritance. Ours is going to look different because, he's, uh, because it's a different relationship. So it's going to look different, but we can kind of surmise some things by looking at Christ and looking at his inheritance. So I want you to think for a minute about what Christ inherited. And I want you to notice the first thing is he suffered first. He was lied about first. He went to the cross first. He suffered deeply and profoundly. And Paul wants to be sure to point out, we inherit and share in his sufferings. So as you're adopted into God's family through the work of Jesus and the mark of the Holy Spirit, as you're adopted, understand that the inheritance is not that you won't suffer. That is not the inheritance. As a matter of fact, Jesus will say, he'll actually seem to indicate that sometimes more trouble comes to followers of Jesus. So the promise and the inheritance, and man, I can't wait to receive this inheritance. Life is going to be easy straight now. No, that is not the promise. That is not the inheritance that we will never suffer. The promise, if you look at the text, is that as we have shared in his suffering, so Jesus promises suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. We will also share in his glory. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's your inheritance. Your inheritance is not that you will never suffer. The inheritance is that just like you've shared in suffering with him, you will also share in his glory. We share in his resurrection. Now, this should be a statement of hope. That someday we will resurrect from the dead, just like Christ rose from the dead. It's a statement of power, that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you and me. And so we are experiencing his glory and his power, not just someday. We are experiencing his glory and his power every single day, empowering us and helping us to live the life he has created us to live. So it's a statement of hope, it's a statement of power, and it is a statement of joy. 
The Greek word for glory here, it means we share in his joy. We share in his joy, not just because Christ rose from the dead. We share in his joy because when we see his resurrection from the dead, we realize we are co-heirs with Christ. I mean, just his resurrection would have been enough, I think, right? But the scripture says we are co-heirs with Christ. And so we know that his joy is our joy. His inheritance is ours. Here's how Paul says it in another text. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What are some of the blessings that are going to come from Christ? Every one of them. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were chosen. In him, we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose, with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to marvel right now at what you've done. That you have adopted us into your family. That we are able to call you Father. That, yeah, we, we serve. Of course we serve as sons and daughters. But our confidence comes from our adoption. So right now we want to marvel at that adoption. And we want to remember that we are, we're co-heirs. We're co-heirs. And there's an inheritance coming. There's an inheritance already given. The promised Holy Spirit is part of that inheritance. But that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing us what is to come. And right now, we know that that inheritance is not that we'll never suffer. The world is the way that it is. Suffering sometimes comes. But just like we share in your suffering, we will share in your glory. And that is an amazing and beautiful promise that we're grateful for. And right now, we know that you are empowering us and you have given us a purpose and a mission. And so right now, we... We're living our eternal life right now because of the Holy Spirit. So we want to live life differently as we approach an election. No reason to be angry. No reason to be harsh. There's every reason to trust in you. 
And so we want to live differently. We want to live as people who have received your Holy Spirit and know we have an inheritance coming. We're grateful for your work on the cross that makes it all possible. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now. And it's an opportunity to remember what was done for our adoption. That because of this kind of moment of the cross and the resurrection, we are able to call God our Father. And that's an amazing truth. Um, And there's a lot of kind of transactional stuff in the gospel that we serve because of all of that. There's some of that in there. But right now, we just want to rest in our sonship, rest in our daughtership, that we are children of God. And that's an amazing truth, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did. So the greeters are going to pass those out, and you just hold on to those two cups. Uh, One has some bread representing his body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And I'll come back up in just a moment, and we'll receive it together. His body given for you. His blood poured out. One One of the points I wanted to wait until we had received communion to walk through real quick is that in American culture, we read all these texts like the ones that, that I read and we tend to think, oh, I'm a son. Or maybe you think, I'm a daughter. Or, you know, we tend to think about it very individualistically. Paul would not have known any of that kind of Lone Ranger imagery. For Paul, he was writing to churches. And so I want you to consider just for a minute as we get ready to close that we are sons and we are daughters. That the church is this kind of beautiful metaphor of this people coming together whom God has saved and drawn together and that, that we are in this together. So whatever road you're traveling, we're, we're in it as a people. We love each other well as a people. We serve each other well as a people. As a matter of fact, you, you may remember one of the very early things that was said about the early church is, I mean, there's no needy person among them. Look at how they love. Look at how they serve. And it's just this people that, that are... We're, we're born into, into sin just like every human being that came in and found Christ and, and they found each other. So I don't want us just to have an individual mindset about it, although there is an individual application. But to kind of look around right now and say, yeah, we are sons, we are daughters, and we are together serving God. And that's powerful as well. Let's stand and close before my son. Worthy is your name.